0: Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. Love, love, love this company. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode. But now, on with the show.
1: If the DXY goes to 110, I think we're going to see a lot of problems here. I think the problems are already uh, appearing to those who know where to look, but they haven't appeared on 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 the cover of the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times when they you know when you see them there then you'll understand that there's a big problem but there are imbalances right now
0: which are huge in my opinion and the dollar strengthening will only bring them to the surface all right everyone welcome back to another episode of on the margin today i'm joined by mr michael Nicoletos. michael welcome to the show how are you michael i'm doing well man i'm doing well um Look, let's just get right into it. Uh, so one of the things I want to make sure that we have time to get to cover is, uh, you know, what's going on in foreign exchange, right? You've got a really great, solid background there. Um, maybe before we dive into what's going on, uh, I know you've got some thoughts on the ruble. Uh, you've been in, in a debate with Mr. Luke Groman on Twitter. Uh, but before we get into that, let's just start. What's your kind of 10,000-foot view of the macro situation right now? What are you really paying attention to? Well, the 10,000 view is the
1: Fed and the inflation situation in the world. There's a big debate here. We're in a We're in a big shift after 20 years of lower rates, and the market seems to be discounting that the Fed will be raising another 11 or 11.5 rate hikes in the next two years. Uh, it feels to me that it's running. the market is running a bit ahead of itself. I understand we have some inflation fears, but my sense is that the inflation peak is behind us. Uh, yes, we'll continue to have inflation but not at the rates that we're currently seeing of 8%. Uh, There's a big debate here if it's supply-driven or demand-driven. Now, it depends from where you look at it. So if you look at it in Europe, it's clearly supply-driven since Europe imports most of its energy. So given what happened in Russia and before Russia, the uh, energy prices had gone up. So this was an issue for Europe. If you look at the US, it's partly supply-driven and partly demand-driven, but uh, in the US, it's a bit more tricky because of COVID, everything shut down. So a lot of people, instead of going to restaurants, started buying things. So that's one thing. And because of all the fiscal uh, stimulus, a lot of people went in both houses and uh, and there was a big investment in that part. I think this will smooth out going forward. so people will start buying less stuff because, A, of inflation, B, because it can go up. And if we look at the data right now in the U.S., we see that mortgage applications are going down week on week. So it feels like we've seen the peak inflation. Now, a question here is, are we going to a new normal which says we're not going back to the level of inflation we saw before COVID? I think that's a fair assessment. We're going to see inflation, but we're not going to see 1% 1% and uh, what we saw before. We're going to see probably 3 to 4%. But I guess 3 to 4% inflation, is this, that, is this really bad? I'm not sure. So the big debate here is, you know, there are a lot of people saying we're going to raise rates. The Fed's going to go higher. But there are two problems here, which I think uh, are critical here. It's the debt part. There's so much debt. Can the world raise rates? I doubt it. And the other one is the the structural issues which have to do with uh, uh, how do you call it um, ah, lower births. Uh, I got my mind got stuck. Uh, so there there's, there are these two issues which right now I think will affect uh, the prices uh, probably going lower. Um, so these are the things I'm looking at right now. Clearly, the market thinks the Fed will be. Uh, will be very very aggressive we've seen this in the dollar and the dollar when the dollar appreciates it spills over it spills it spills over everywhere because it's the big it's the currency that everyone transacts with or at least the the currency that most people transact with so i think that's where it starts and that's where it spills over and that's where it goes on around the world in terms of emerging markets in terms of the ruble in terms of any currency you look at the dollar going higher is like, you know, uh, it's like a liquidity uh, pullback around the world. That's the problem that we're facing right now. And if something breaks, I don't know if it feels that something's going to break. I don't know what that could be. It could be Turkey. It could be the Hong Kong peg. It could be Russia. It could be something. I'm just, you know, these, these all, all these topics have been on the table for some time now. So it, it, it's not really easy to time them, but there are a lot of Things going ro- the, the other side, which could trigger uh, something to break. Now, e- in my view, at least, either the Fed continues to raise rates, and at some point we see a big uh, turn in in the macros. We saw Q1 G- GDP in Q1 was much worse than expected for the U.S. Now, either we see a, a big slowdown ahead, and the Fed is forced to re- to to reverse course, or we see something breaking where. We see again the Fed reversing course. That's how I feel about it. So I'm not one of these people who think that the rates are going to go to 6 and 7% or whatever, you know, estimates there are there. I understand that inflation is high, but it feels like we're after the... It's, it's, it's pretty similar to what was going on after, I think, uh, World War II, where we had, again, inflation. Uh, we had a lot of debt. It was mostly created by supply-driven constraints, and I think we, we're we likely to see some form of yield curve control at some point, because the, the Fed will not be able to take rates much higher
0: if things start breaking. There, there was a lot there. let us let's, let's kind of dive in. I've got two questions for you just about the dollar in general okay. that you mentioned. So one, you know you've obviously seen the the Dixie rising uh, right pretty precipitously over the course of the last like month or so. So my question to you is, a, do you interpret that um, as the market believing that the Fed actually is going to successfully raise rates? So that's question number one. And then two, I just want to double click on something you said when the dollar goes higher, that is liquidity moving out of the global financial system. And I wanted to get a sense of what you meant by that. So two-part question for you there, just on, on the dollar. Okay.
1: Regarding the dollar, the, the first part, if the market is discounting that the Fed is uh, serious about what they've said, well, if you look at the mm-hmm. U.S. bond market, it says 11.5 rate heights in the next two years. So the market mm-hmm. is taking it pretty seriously. If you look at Equities, and you don't look at indexes, but you look at the constituents. You will see that the markets uh, have corrected. Growth stocks have been beaten up because growth stocks, you know, thrive usually when rates are zero, or close to zero, or you know, close because it's it's like a duration trade. Uh, you, you can go long enough, and you can and you can bet on the growth part and not on the re- on the bottom line part. Now, when interest rates go up, your opportunity cost rises, so. If you put your money in the bank you get some return and now it's a it's a serious discussion do i put my money in the bank and get some return with uh zero risk or do i bet on a growth stock so this debate the higher the rates you know the 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 the, the tug of war tends to 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 shift towards the bank and the deposits or toward uh value stocks that yield some return so that's the one thing now, regarding the liquidity that part that I mentioned. Now, when the if if you look at the world and you look at the world outside the U.S. and I think this is a discussion I have with most people that are based in the U.S. Uh, the the, the all, having the U.S. is a the U.S. dollar is a privilege. Uh, it, it might be a bad currency. I understand it via if you if you if you if you compare it to let's say hard assets, but. When we compare a currency, we tend to compare it with other currencies, other fiat currencies. Let me put it that way. So the dollar might be a bad currency, but it's, let's say, a clean, a cleaner shirt than the other currencies in that sense. So the Fed raising rates creates you know, uh, uh, an inflow in US dollars because clearly it, it, it yields more. and. I don't know if uh, there's the the euro dollar market, which is the dollars created outside the US, which is equally big as the US dollar market. And all these banks tend to lend US dollars to let's say emerging markets or to corporates. So as the dollar goes up, if you're let's say a Turkish company or a Russian company or a Chinese company, and your revenues are not in dollars, when the dollar goes up and your revenues are in the local currency, you need to repay more. So suddenly, you know, in the beginning it's okay, but at some point it becomes an issue. And at some point the bank will say, I need more collateral or at some point they will say, start paying or the interest payments, if they're in the currency are getting bigger and bigger. So this is an issue and that's how it creates a liquidity squeeze outside the
0: US mainly so outside of you know just the Dixie and the, and the dollar in general we've seen big moves in, in the foreign exchange space right so you know you and I were kind of chatting about the ruble uh, but also the yen uh, you know the Japanese yen is selling off in a, in a really large way at least compared to the dollar Maybe let's start with the ruble uh, and your kind of thoughts there uh, if you want to explain kind of the debate that you've been going back and forth with with Luke Groman on, on Twitter the last couple of weeks and just what your thought on the ruble is
1: Well well there is a discussion being made that the ruble is being has been appreciating the last few weeks because the market realizes that it's backed by hard assets, that hard assets means gold and oil. Yes, Russia has a lot of gold and has a lot of actually has a lot of oil and has a lot of gold. So given that it doesn't have uh, a lot of liabilities, people will say this is a good currency to hold. If that was the case, then the ruble before the Russian invasion should be doing very well, which was not doing anything uh, dramatic. So what happened the war started and suddenly investors realized that this is the greatest currency and we should put more money into it i'm not so sure it's like uh, there's been a cap so the russian government does not allow you to 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 withdraw uh, dollars they have put a cap on it and also they've uh, told the central bank and the and the commercial banks that they cannot convert for another six months more than an x amount of rubles to dollars. So no one, no one can, uh, can can sell rubles actually within Russia. So you do not have a seller. Now, given the sanctions that occurred and given that Russia is selling mostly to Europe a- and other countries, but Europe, I think is more than 50% of its exports in terms of energy, there was a discussion that Putin came out and said, I'm going to accept only rubles for my uh, for my energy. Okay. In, in as a political move I think it's very smart because it, it creates some uh some some credit for him internally in Russia because if your currency is devaluing 30 40 percent then the Russians which live in Russia feel poorer inflation goes much higher because you need to import a lot of stuff so there's a big unease within Russia by doing so putin created First of all, you cannot sell rubles, so there's no offer. So there's only a bid for it, and the bid for it, mm. which, if you if you ask me, it's a bit technical, because the the Russian companies before the war they were being paid in dollars and euros, and they were and they and they were forced to to swap most of it in rubles. Now, by sanctioning all the banks and by leaving some banks non-sanctioned effectively allowing Europe to be able to buy energy because if they sanctioned all banks then they wouldn't be able to be a transaction so it's a practical issue the the the, the Europeans are paying in in a Russian bank effectively they're buying, paying dollars and euros and the local bank is doing the effects so it's the same thing it's just it's it's more let's say political than it's practical so i think yeah. the, the 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 ruble squeezed okay but if you go to Russia I'm pretty sure you cannot it, 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 they will they will buy dollars at the di- at the discount if you're selling them so if you're selling dollars at the discount within Russia it doesn't mean there is real demand for it it means that it's fictional and it's done for purposes which we all understand and and Putin has to do them to keep you know the
0: the, the, the local uh, situation intact and he doesn't want people to get upset with him so basically, so to maybe summarize your argument here, you're saying that the recovery in the ruble is less due to fundamental factors, people rethinking about how to value currencies relative to each other, less about it being backed by this kind of oil and gold and these hard commodities, and more about kind of temporary stop gaps that the Russian government is putting in place to prop up the price. Cor- is that cor- correct. Because
1: if, if that was the case, then the ruble would have done pretty well before the war. But when you evaluate the country and you evaluate the currency, it's not only what the current account is and what the fiscal account is. is also the rule of law. There are a lot of other things you need to, ta- to pay attention to. And th- before the war, you could trade easily rubles. You could do anything you wanted. You could even buy CDS. You, there was, if you were an institutional investor, you could do it pretty easily. Uh, so if institutional investors wanted to do that, they would have done it. And I, and I don't know any hedge fund leaving money on the table if there's free money on the table. So uh, that's before the war. Now, again, the situation has changed. So I think uh, it's more of a technical issue, as I said, than a fundamental one.
0: This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. I talk to a lot of fast growing crypto native funds, crypto banks, exchanges, and the like, and they all tell me they have the same two problems. One, their treasury management setup sucks they've got analysts wasting time and money on manual transactions two they are not happy with their current security setup they're sharing passwords they're sending test transactions and they're worried that their funds might be at risk fireblocks is a platform that solves all of that for you they're a one-stop shop portal which automatically plugs into exchanges trading venues etc they source deep liquidity and solve everything from day-to-day crypto transactions all the way down to complex DeFi strategy And the best thing about Fireblocks is that they offer scalable solutions with industry leading technology. Doesn't matter if you're a two person crypto fund or a 2000 person crypto exchange, these guys have you covered. And the last thing that I'll say about this company is that I have known them for years. They are a high integrity team. They ship product like no other. I would trust them with my own funds. So click the link at the bottom of this page and tell them that I sent you. Very, very important that you click the link at the bottom here. Otherwise, they're not going to know that I sent you. And then how am I going to get credit? So help a brother out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell him I sent you. What we're kind of talking about here reminds me a little bit um, of uh, Zoltan Pozar. I don't know if you saw his, you know, Bretton Woods uh, 3 kind of note that he that he published. But, you know, the general idea being you know, we've, the, the the current fiat system that we've had has been, you know, if you look at the history of money, right, it kind of started with these very hard, like precious metals. And then it was, you know, notes that were backed by a certain ratio of precious metals. And then we just fully divorced that. Now we're in this completely, uh, you know, paper fiat world. Uh, you know, Zoltan's kind of idea was that ultimately, at the end of the day, we might be, we might have reached the peak of that system. And we might be moving to another system that uh, actually is backed by something like, uh, you know, hard commodities, right? Because, in situations of war or you know, like when you have to go without things, it doesn't matter how much money you print if you can't get access to commodities that people need to survive, like basic building materials or food or whatever, that's really the valuable stuff. I guess moving away from the valuation of the ruble and, and what's causing the rebound in that, do you agree with that kind of shift uh, in terms of how currencies get valued or like what are your thoughts well, on kind of that? Point? I think
1: it's a valid discussion and I think we might see that, but I cannot see that situation holding on for a long time. Do you know any government that wants to be restrained when they when someone says you cannot spend more than X, Y, Z? So I think, you know, we could get, we could go to a gold standard or a basket standard, or maybe Bitcoin. I, I don't know. I'm just, I don't have a view on that. You could have a basket of, of you know, hard stuff and these could be like, uh, or the SDR of the IMF, they could be a, something uh, more tangible, but Again, if that were to happen, I think it would be temporary, because hmm. uh, once things smooth out, X, Y, Z government will say, "I want to spend more. Why should I be backed by this? Why should I be locked?" And governments and politicians, this is a way of work. And and let me put it this way: any government, any any politician that comes out and says, "I want to spend more," but they won't let me, I don't think the the people will will be will be for them, let me give you an example, which is pretty, pretty. You know, you will understand this. The European Union has some form of what we're talking about. There are 19 countries which are binded by an agreement that theoretically they cannot spend more than three percent of their GDP. There's a constraint to that. There was prior to COVID. Now, because of COVID, there are some few relaxations, and it's supposed to come back at some point. All the rules. Now, this has created huge issues within the European. And let aside Greece, which you know went, you know uh, uh, it, it went out of uh, out of this world in spending, and then had to, you know, had to, to be forced to come back to uh, uh, normality. But let's look at Italy. Italy has not benefited at all from the euro, and this is a big country. It's not a small country. They. they they never went really high, they never went really low, but they've been stagnant within the 20 years. So at some point, Italy, I guess, this is my view, because it's a big country and they can force the debate, because Greece cannot force any debate. Uh, they, they will they will force the debate and say, guys, either we relax the rules or something has to change. So my view has been that you cannot, uh, this is a bit, I'm going you know, a bit off, uh, off script in the discussion, but the, the question is, Can the euro hold? My view is the euro cannot hold unless there's fiscal uh, discipline or there's fiscal integration. But fiscal integration means that each government will need to give their fiscal authority to Brussels, and then local governments will be puppets, puppets, you know, quote unquote, uh, to Brussels, which I think this cannot happen because it goes against politicians. Let me put it this way. And and it's very easy to convince people that I want to spend more, but Brussels won't let me. What do you want me to do? What do you think the people will say? Spend more. I want more. So it's an easy sellable debate. And at some point when things get tough, so restraints on a fiscal discipline, I think have a limited time to answer
0: your question. I think it could be a debate. You think it could happen, but I don't think it could last. I'm kind of torn about this because I understand the argument, right? There's this great like Alan Greenspan quote, right? Who Alan Greenspan, you kind of think of him as the architect of these loose monetary accommodation you know, regime that we've been in for however long. But he used to be a hard money guy. And I think what he's got this great quote about what changed his mind is, what's the point of having honest currencies if governments aren't going to be honest themselves, right? So I completely understand that point, right? And, you know, we have these historical examples, we did have a gold standard, governments moved off it for precisely the reason that you're outlining, right? Because if governments want to spend, they will find a way to spend. Uh, on the other hand, do you think that there's a logical limit that we bump up against in the current system? Right. So we have this, we have this system where people kind of I think the underlying core idea here between how our central banking and commercial banking systems are structured is that you can borrow ad infinitum, right? And we've seen, you know, debt to GDP in the US move up from, you know, the last time we had inflation in the 70s, it was like 30 or 35% debt to GDP, and now it's 140% debt to GDP. And probably some amount of that is due to this idea that if politicians want to spend, if central banks want to ease, then we'll find the money to do that. Uh, and now, you know, well, you, could, you could make the argument that we're kind of bumping up into the end, you know, the logical limits of that system, right? You know, interest rates are approaching zero. We have less room, right? The, the central bank kind of, uh, as we go through different, um, you know, recessions and contractions in the economy, they have less room to raise rates as, the as uh, you know, rates kind of go lower and lower. Is there a logical limit to this idea that governments can just spend ad infinitum? Does that system eventually break, I suppose, is the question. Well, uh, they cannot spend forever. the mm. The only reason
1: they can spend forever right now, or at least it appears they can spend forever, is because the debt is much larger than the GDP. Global GDP, I think, is around 94 trillion global debt is around 300 trillion so Mm. every time you restrict uh capital or you know you don't you don't spend more you have a huge contract or you have you have either a contraction in gdp or suddenly the debt cannot be serviced so right now what's the path out of this uh look if we look at japan and i'm saying japan because you mentioned it earlier and we've seen the currency fall uh materially since the beginning of the year i think around 15%. Why has Japan, why the Japanese currency has fallen fifteen percent Well, the Japanese currency has not had any growth for many years, even though rates have been close to zero, uh, they have a huge demographics problem, which now we see it around the world. And now the other thing is they've done yield curve control. So the 10 year is fixed at 0.25% and now they're giving also fiscal transfers. This is what many have argued, what MMT is. MMT is Mm. you do fiscal policy and you finance it by issuing bonds, which the central bank buys it. So effectively Mm -hmm. that's what MMT is practically speaking. So we've seen the, 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 initial steps of MMT in, in Japan. That's why the currency is falling. Now the question is, is Japan an outlier or is Japan the canary in the coal mine, meaning that we're going to see others doing it. It feels to me that we're going to see more doing that. And it feels to me that at some point, I I don't know what that point is, but right now, I think uh, the BOJ holds like 136%, 130, whatever percent of, uh, Japan's debt, uh, the debt that it holds is 130% of GDP. Now the question there is one day, I guess the finance minister. We'll meet the central banker. I'll say, hey man, how much do I owe you? I owe you X. (laughs) Yeah, but it's the right pocket owing to the left pocket. Yeah, I'm right. Okay, let's 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 bundle up, make a hundred-year perpetual bond, and let's put that aside. I think that's the end, that's how this thing's gonna evolve at some point. Now, you're gonna say, if that happens, are we gonna see inflation going through the roof? My answer to that is. I'm not so sure we're going to see inflation, but I don't think we're going to see inflation uh, like hyperinflation or anything like that. Because if we were to see inflation, and I think the inflation shift happened when the fiscal tra- transfer started. So in my my thesis has been that we've seen inflation in the U.S., A, because of the supply reasons, and B, because the U.S. government spent $5 trillion in fiscal policies after COVID. So this was $5 trillion that in fiscal transfers that did not exist before. So I, I don't think that the QE part was the big part. Obviously, QE played a role. I'm not saying it didn't play a role, but the differentiator this time was the fiscal policy. So I think that the fiscal policy is what makes a difference and what creates inflation. Now, depending on its size and depending on, 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 on what's going to happen, you're going to see inflation or not. Now, I think. It will be very interesting to see what happens in Japan. But I think that's the reason, that's like a prelude to what we might see in the world in the future. That's how bad it feels to me.
0: Yeah, I I, I think you might be right um, in that regard. Uh, I mean, and you know, I also wanted to get your your view on kind of the uh, USD Yen uh, pair trading, uh, doing what it's doing right now. I mean, this is one of the worst routes in, in the Yen uh, dollar pair in, you know, recent memory. Um, do you think it's this kind of, I guess you know. Do your exactly what you just said. Do you view this as being kind of a canary in the coal mine type situation, or what do you? How do you ascribe the the move here?
1: You see the dollar going higher, and you see it versus the yen, and you see it versus the euro. The two are moving. The euro and the yen are moving lower, but for different reasons. Uh, I think what we're seeing in the yen, which is the yield curve control, and now the fiscal uh, uh, spending, uh, which is uh, uh, it, it, it's it's justified by the inflation problems that are happening around the world. I think this is the reason that we see the, the, the yen going lower. and In, in going to me, it's gonna go much lower, unless unless the U.S. embarks on the same model, which then, you know, when one does something, you're gonna see it in, in effects. If everyone does it, that's QE, for example, If if one country did QE, it worked. If everyone does QE, then you won't see the problem in the FX crosses, because the FX crosses remain stable even though they're being debased at the same time. So you have the dollar printing, you have the euro printing, you have the yen printing, but if they all print at the same time, the FX cross is going to, mean to stay at the same level or relatively, you're not going to see a big swing. That's why I think that hard assets, just to answer like gold, and this is one of the reasons Bitcoin in my view has been going up, because they are fixed. So the fixed part is going, actually they're not going higher, the currencies are going lower. So you see the hard assets seem stable and the, the currency being debased, but you don't see it in the FX crosses. So the yen will continue to move lower until someone else, and I'm talking about the US, which is the biggest, uh, is the elephant in the room, starts doing the same. Mm. Once the US reverses course or talks about doing yield curve control, I think you're gonna see the dollar going much lower and I think you're going to see also global growth
0: return higher. I've got a question for you. So, you know, one one other thing that occurs to me just listening to you speak about the stability of FX uh, crosses is, you know, for roughly, right, the last like 15 or so years, the entire world, global central banks have been engaged in QE simultaneously, right? Which is why you've kind of seen stability across those, across those um, different rates. But, you know, the U.S. at least is, like you said, the bond market is pricing in the U.S. to actually raise rates pretty aggressively, right, at a time where there's an enormous amount of economic pain being inflicted across, you know, uh, the entire world. So my question to you is, A, if the U.S. starts to raise rates, and we have the risk-free rate, right, that should cause rates across the world, like emerging markets, to rise even more. Can Can they essentially do that? And if not, do you start to see global central bank policies kind of diverge, right, where you start to see other countries try to ease while the U.S. tightens. Like, do you do you think we see, like, a divergence in just central bank policy, which has been extremely uniform for the last 12 you, or you years? You could
1: see a divergence, but it's very hard to see it in emerging markets. And uh, let me explain to you why it's very hard to see it in the emerging markets. The reason that it's very hard to see it in emerging markets is because usually in emerging markets, interest rates are much higher than what it is what, than what the dollar interest rates are. So local corporates, in order not to pay 10 and 15% in their local currency, they tend to bo- go and borrow from the dollar at 2, 3, 4, 5%. That depends on your credit rating. But anyway, you, you, they borrow at a much lower rate. So when they borrow at mother lower, they feel very well, very good with themselves when things are going well. Now, when things are going bad, if an emerging market decides to diverge from the U.S. policy, it means that it will have to lower rates, or it means that we'll have to keep negative real rates higher than what the U.S. is. So suddenly, the local currency will start falling versus the dollar, for example. If that happens, then the problem becomes even bigger. The thing is that the, the emerging markets need to follow up, because if they don't, then they create a bigger issue. Now, there's a big debate here if, because there's been a policy divergence by China, and there are many advocates who say that right. China is going to ease. Now, this is a big discussion, but let me give you an example. China has capital controls. So since it has capital controls, money cannot leave the country. I think they have around $50,000 per year you can take out. I'm not sure. It's something like that. Now, I'll give you a, a number for you to understand. M2 versus FX reserves, and I'm giving that ratio, I'll explain why, the FX reserves are less than 9% of M2. And why do I say that? Imagine a balloon where you pour air, now that's Chinese economy and why the balloon gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But the air cannot leave because you have capital controls and that's money. Usually in an open market system, you, you can take your dollars, you can bring them to Europe, you can send all your money, wherever you want. You don't have an issue right now. So the fact that you have a free capital, it means that your currency and your system is in balance. Now, when you have capital controls, the, the market cannot balance out. It can only balance out whatever the government says. So when the, the, the Asian crisis, the, the, the pegs broke. Just to give you an understanding of the magnitude, they broke, the pegs broke when the FX to M2 reserves ratio fell below 25%. Now, China's FX to M2 is less than 9%, less than 9%, which means that if something were to happen and everyone wanted to take their money out of China, the crisis would be huge. Okay, now to be realistic, this cannot happen because China won't allow it to happen. But again, that means that it's unstable. It doesn't mean that it's stable. So they're juggling too many balls uh, at the same time. They're trying to, 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 to create a, cons- a consumer-driven economy and, and a less-than-investment an economy. Right now, consumption in China is 37% of GDP. To put it in perspective, in the U.S., it's around 69 70%. So the consumer is driving the expansion. China has been trying to keep up with the GDP by doing what, and by by creating investment and creating unproductive investment. Let me give you an example. For example, it's a, if I build a bridge and then I destroy that bridge and then I rebuild that bridge, it it, it counts in the GDP as an accreditive. You don't subtract the, the the destruction of the bridge. That's not what China is doing. But by building ghost cities or by building unproductive investments, they've created a big internal debt mechanism to fund that GDP. And in China, the GDP number is an input number, not an output number like
0: it is in in the rest of the Western world. Can you explain what you mean by that? It's an input number, not an output number? Okay.
1: It means that whatever the Chinese government wants, it used to be an input number in the USSR, for example, an input number says, I want 5%. GDP growth. Okay, we'll give you 5%. What do we need to do? You need to build uh, 20 bridges and 100 hospitals. Fine, we'll do it. Where do we find the money? The bank will lend to the municipality, the municipality will lend to, and and this whole gray thing creates, which like, it's an internal. It's a target versus measurement. Exactly. Basically. So it's not a relative, it's not a good measure to compare it to the Western world. In the Western world, it's an output numbers. It's what you create. This is a GDP number. So that's the difference between the two. So I'm trying to say that if the dollar starts strengthening a lot, and I'm saying already it has already, it, uh, it's important to, 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 to point out that the speed matters as well. If it was like 20 bips a quarter, no one would notice. If it's 20 bips a day, everyone noticed. So the, the, the speed of the increase of the US dollar matters as well. And we've seen it go to 103. If the DXY goes to 110, I think we're going to see a lot of problems uh, appear. I, I think the problems are already uh, appearing to those who know where to look, but they haven't appeared on the, on, the, on the cover of the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times. Uh, when they, you know, When you see them there, then you'll understand that there's a big problem. But there are imbalances right now, which are huge, in my opinion, and the dollar strengthening will only bring them to the surface. It doesn't do any good to them.
0: So let's kind of uh maybe conclude the conversation with where what where we started, which is the Fed and what they're gonna do, right? Uh so you know, the Fed has been, uh, you know, depending on your opinion, maybe a little bit behind dealing with the inflation problem in general. Like people like to look back at the 70s and 80s and say when we had inflation that was, you know, we had headline inflation at 8.5%, federal funds rate was like 14%, or whatever it was. Uh, and we're just talking about getting up to three by the end of the year. Um, you know, the, if you look at the GDP number from last quarter, right, we're already starting to see some of the demand destruction, right? So, what people are worried about is that in the same way that the Fed was behind on dealing with inflation, they're going to be behind on dealing with the fact that the, they've already created some of the the demand destruction that they want to see and tightening into it is just going to be tightening into a a slowdown and a recession. That's not going to do anyone any good. Um, So I'm curious, like what you think about that argument in general, like have we already started to see some of the demand destruction show up in the economy? And if so, should the Fed be hiking into that?
1: I think we've seen some demand destruction in the sense, the way the Fed is looking at it. Although I don't think it's a demand destruction, but it's, uh, it's, it's a shift in the allocation of resources in terms of, instead of of renovating my house because I'm locked in, I'm going to go to a restaurant. So suddenly durable goods will not have as much as demand as they had last year. I'm just you know trying to put it in layman terms. Now, comparing it to the 70s and the 80s, I think it's not a good analogy for the reason that in the 70s we didn't have a lot of debt, so the Fed could afford to raise rates. And without destroying everything, Uh, the debt analogy now is closer to the forties, fifties. So I think that period is more uh, close. I I think it's a better proxy. And in in the seventies, you also had the baby boomers coming into the market. There was also, there was a big demand issue and a supply issue. Now you're mostly focused on the supply issues, not so, so much. De- it's it's a relative demand issue, yes, but demand is not going through the roof. It's not like we're going to uh, we're going up ten twenty percent on on goods based pre COVID. So uh, I don't think that th- there's the demand is that strong. Now the Fed is behind if we look at the inflation numbers, yes, but the bond market is ahead of the Fed. The bond market is discounting 11 hikes. So if the bond market is discounting 11 hikes,
0: is the bond doing the Fed's work without the Fed needing to do it? But the the short end of the curve has moved a lot. Uh, A lot more than the long end of the curve, right? So I I feel like the Fed actually does have pretty good uh, control of the short end of the curve, right? Their expectations management or their expectations channel or whatever they do that the 10-year hasn't moved quite as much, right? As like the two-year, for instance, okay
1: The two years around two seven two point seven percent, I think and the 10 years around two nine five two nine two Something like that. Well, first Mm -hmm. of all, the flattening of the curve is not a bullish line no it's not okay so we're not there yet but it it seems that we're going towards that uh i understand the the logic and i understand if if i'm wrong in my thesis that we've not seen peak inflation and inflation is ahead of us then definitely the fed will continue to to raise rates but raising rates will break something so either we're going to see a smooth transition where the u.s data starts to slow down and the fed Realizes that the data is slowing down. Actually, they're only looking at credit spreads, or the credit spreads widen more than they want. Right now, uh, I th- I think mortgage rates are around five percent. So this, at some point, is going to be an issue because people will start to refinance. This is it takes time because most people have a fixed rate, so it doesn't happen really instantly. You don't do you don't see the effects uh, uh, instantly. So. They they focus mostly on those on the spreads and on the corporate spreads. So, if if that widens a lot and the economy starts to slow down and the Fed changes course, this is one way. If that doesn't happen and the Fed continues to raise rates and the US dollar continues to strengthen, and one day you have a Turkey, a country like Turkey, or a country like Hong Kong uh, trying to depeg or some bigger issue. I hope it's not China because if there's an issue with China, then it's going to be a pretty big problem for the planet and for the world economy. Now, if something breaks, then the, the shift will be abrupt. So I remember when, I think it was 2017 or 2018, when Powell started to taper and suddenly the NASDAQ fell like 30% in December. So you saw how fast they changed your views. It takes a market correction now because the index seems to be good. It doesn't mean that the, the stocks below uh, the, the constituents of the indexes are doing as, uh, as as well. If if the if the index starts falling a lot, and I mean a lot, I mean like fifteen twenty percent from here. Do you think the Fed will continue on this course? I I, I doubt. It. I, I I you know I, I I you never know, but I doubt. It. So it, my my problem is. I understand that there's inflation but i understand there's also debt people for some reason think that the debt is not an issue well unless you find a fi- unless you figure out a way to write it off it's it's it, it, it's it's an elephant in the room which you need to deal with
0: yeah i would agree with you there michael um all right uh, you've already been super generous with your time and I, I know we've got to wind it down here uh if folks want to find out more about you any of the great work you do, what's the best way to follow you, get in touch, uh, anything like that?
1: Well, the best way for them to follow me is on Twitter. It's MNicoletos, uh, my handle, uh, or on LinkedIn. Uh, right now I'm setting up a new business. So once I have something up, uh, I'll, I'll let you know. But if anything macro related or any specifics, or if anyone wants to ask anything about emerging markets or anything, feel free to contact me. I, I respond pretty
0: uh on time it was it, thank you for your, thank you for having me it was great talking to you today Michael. yeah absolutely <laughs> um and when you when you launch that new business we'll have to get you back on the show and tell everyone sure. uh, about what you're doing for sure yeah perfect okay cool all right until then michael thanks so much for coming on cheers